the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to another edition of The Ride Home with John and Kathy, live from the Salem-Pittsburgh studios. And now, here are your hosts, John Hall and Kathy Emmons. Well, good afternoon, and thanks for coming along. The Thursday, January 4th edition of The Ride Home. Kath, good to see you. Snow coming this weekend, is what I understand? Well, it's a mixed bag. Kind of rain and snow? It's going to be a little warm, right? But they're saying snow, snow, snow. So Saturday around 1 o'clock is what I read in the trip. Mm -hmm. It was going to be a transition maybe from rain to snow. Could be. And that the Steeler game could be messy in Baltimore. So grab your I'm snacks I'm psyched early. about that game. I am too. I am psyched. I can't tell. I'm so glad you brought that oh up. Oh, my gosh. I'm super excited about it. I don't know why. Oh, because. <sighs> I mean, okay, so they're starting their backup quarterback, mm-hmm. which is good for us. Right, except that he's one of the best right, backups, I, I believe, probably in the league. Probably is. I mean, it's certainly not going to be a cakewalk. They're the best team in the league, right? Listen, what they did last week to Miami was just ruination. It was ruination. I dislike them so much. Me too, of course. I dislike them so much. I dislike how um, John Harbaugh looks. uh, Every time something happens, he looks up like Mm -hmm. he's being persecuted. (laughs) The Harbaugh brothers are very good at that. Aren't they? What what went on in that house? What went on in that house? And Miles Garrett, right? Mm -hmm. And Mason Rudolph. No, he can't play. Maybe he won't play. Uh, maybe not. Why would he? Why would he want to play? D- don't get hurt, right? Save your best. Let yeah, the but then you're going to. But then you're going to be stinky because you've been sitting on your sofa for two weeks. Right. There is that. Right. So maybe they'll play for a little bit. It's hard to believe the Steeler coaches haven't consulted us. For <laughs> anyway, hey, we have an excellent show strategy. for you today. We which sure we do. Are super excited we about. are in the five o'clock hour. We're going to talk about biblical archaeology's mm. top ten discoveries of last year. Like this, which is really a it's a fascinating collection of stuff. Seriously, I can't wait for that conversation that's coming up with Gordon Govier at five ten. Also, um, a few things that blew our minds in last year. Which there are a lot of. There are a lot. Uh, the, Atla- the Atlantic came up with 81. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk about significantly fewer than that. Yeah. But there are, there are a couple that kind of stuck with it's us. It's a wonderful and weird world. Exactly. Also, what's the best time to eat dinner? Hmm. That was on the front page of the Wall Street Journal today. Right. Mm-hmm. Talk about that. In the 4 o'clock hour, guess what we're going to talk about in a tell little me, bit? Tell me. Tell me. Contraception. What? Yeah. Holy <laughs> smokes. It's yes. the ride home, the contraception <laughs> program. It's the contraceptive edition. Yes. If you've been wondering home. about contraception, now's the time no, to chime here's in. Here's the thing. Um, we have a friend, Charlie Camosi, who is a, um, a doctor at the Creighton University School of Medicine. Mm-hmm. And... He comes on and talks to us from his Catholic perspective, um, and we come on and talk from our Protestant perspective, and it's been really good. Very much so. Um, we've done this for a couple of years, uh, but so lately we've been getting into more dicey things. Communion, like we, Mary, Mary, right? Right. Uh, and so why not contraception? And so why not? Why can't we just get into contraception? Mm-hmm. So we're going to talk about that at 440. So Very it sounds nice. like a good addition to the ride home, John. All right. Good 2024 is going off, getting off with a big bang. And Bill Glenn. 
Glaze. And Bill Glaze, but that's, you know, we'll talk about that in just a couple. All right. So without further ado, let's take a quick look at the news stories of the day. Kath, please give us the top four at four. It's Thursday, John. Junior. No acknowledgement. <laughs> January 4th, 2024. <laughs> Number one. Iranian leaders vowed revenge today for a pair of bombings that killed dozens of people yesterday in the country's southeast, but they stopped short of blaming domestic militants or Israel for their biggest attack in decades. The blast took place in the city of Kerman near a public ceremony commemorating the death of Qasem Soleimani, a commander of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard's core elite Quds Force, who was killed back in January of 2020 by a U.S. airstrike. His success prayed briefly at the site today, shrouded by supporters who called for revenge against the U.S. and Israel, which some Iranian officials have accused of backing the attacks without, of course, providing any evidence. Other Iranian officials say the blasts were the work of terrorists. U.S. officials say the U.S. had no involvement and that they had no indication Israel did either. Read more about that in today's Wall Street Journal. Number two. This makes me mad. Mm -mm. Computer keyboards are making room for an AI chatbot button as Microsoft unveils its first major keyboard redesign in 30 years. Starting this month, some new PCs that run Microsoft's Windows 11 will have a special co-pilot key that launches uh, AI's chatbot. Just like is. a little button there, like mm-hmm. your little emoji button right. you might have or whatever. Yeah. You need uh-huh. some help? Remember that little, the friendly guy. Getting third-party computer manufacturers like Dell to add an AI button to laptops is the latest move by Microsoft to capitalize on its close partnership with chat GPT maker OpenAI. I hate it. I hate the keyboard redesign. I don't want it. Uh, the last time they made any major change was in the 90s. You can't fight it. I'm, I'm, I'm fighting it. You start a petition. Watch me fight it. All right. It's from ABC News. <laughs> Number three, more U.S. hospitals, John, requiring what? Masks. Mm-hmm. Masks and limiting visitors as health officials face an expected but still nasty post-holiday spike in flu, COVID, and other illnesses. New York City last week instituted a mask mandate for the city's 11 public hospitals. Similar measures ordered in L.A., Massachusetts. Um, some hospitals reinstated the masking of employees a couple months ago um, because flu and COVID-19 infections have been increasing for weeks. But there is good news. Flu and COVID-19 cases, they're expecting to peak by the end of the month and then drop. Okay. And even though there's been a lot of flu, it seems like this year's flu vaccine is uh, well matched to the strain. Good. That's from today's AP. Did you it's get unusual. a flu shot? Uh, I, 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 I didn't. Don't, no. Lex, did you get a flu shot? No, no. No, she's shaking her head. No. Okay, so I, was, I believe it, that shots are very, very low. Okay, so Far it was it was shot. so well well matched to the strain that the three of us didn't get it. <laughs> so we're idiots. <laughs> and number four, I got a weird animal story for you. Right, who doesn't love yes, one? Yes, with fangs fangs, I tell you, that could pierce a human's fingernail. The largest male specimen of the world's most venomous arachnid, that spider, Mm. to you and me, has found a new home at the Australian Reptile Park, where it will help to save lives after a member of the public discovered it by chance. And that 
is your top four. What do you mean? Discovered this Listen gigantic this. spider by so chance? So this is a, this is a Sydney funnel web spider. Okay, it is extremely deadly. Somebody found it about fifty miles north of Sydney, and they gave it to a local hospital because this particular animal hospital takes venom out of these spiders and creates anti-venom oh, in case someone is actually uh, uh, you know bitten by the spider. Um, it's the largest male specimen ever received from the public. Really? It measures 7.9 centimeters, <clears throat> which is about th- over three inches from foot to foot. It is disgusting looking. It's the stuff of nightmares. All I can tell you is it looks like a giant gross spider. Yikes. So who found that? Some Where dude, did they find Some that? person found it. And how did they it? catch it? I, that is a question that was not mm-hmm. answered by this article. I'd be curious But it that. is the biggest male that they've ever found. The spider. Okay, yeah. well, it's, well, for all oh, they named him. Mm-hmm. Of course Her- they did. Hercules. Because he's gigantic. Exactly. Super strong. Yeah. All right, let's take a, let's a look at the news. Yeah, but cast. any... Um, any spider that is captured, any venomous spider that's captured by a member of the public in Australia and yeah. turned in, uh, they are card. they are milked to extract their venom because they have a spectacular, apparently, and effective um, anti-venom program in Australia. Interesting. Since they started it in 1981, there has not been one fatality in Australia. What? From a spider from, bite? From a spider bite. That's super cool. Go the Australians. Right? But man, go online. No, I got this story from ABC News and look at how gross it is. Holy smokes. Okay. Let's move forward. Uh, we're going to talk with Bill Glaze in just a few minutes. He's talking about... He stopped saying good luck. Good luck to you. Do he you say that? I don't think I do either. Good, yeah. Do you say it? No, I was corrected on that early, early on air, as a matter of fact. <laughs> All right, we'll take a quick break. Come back. It's the Thursday, January 4th edition of The Ride Home. Pittsburgh's Christian Talk. It's Word FM. Years ago, when I was the uh, the morning host here on Word FM, this was like the first week of my job, I said something about good luck. Hey, good luck to you, or something like that, innocuous. Boy, the phones lit up. <laughs> and I was schooled uh, deeply. Um, you know, you're not allowed to say good luck if you're a Christian. No, do not. I mean, and people were saying, it's not good luck, John. It's a blessing. Say, it's have a blessing. All right. So I, I've shied away All from right. that. I appreciate people, you know, chiming in. But what about that? I mean, I get it. Theologically, good luck is yeah, its own thing. Right. But it's it's a it's a sort of a goodwill thing, right? Hey, good luck to yeah, you. Yeah, and it's kind of something that you you don't you mean how it feels, not what you're saying. Right. I mean, it's like I'm handing out horseshoes. Right. <laughs> right. Or checking your your. Uh, Horoscope before you go to bed tonight. Right. Or here's a four-leaf clover, Kath. All those things. Bill Glaze is back with us. Bill's been a regular guest of ours over the many years. He is pastored Bethany Baptist Church in the Homewood neighborhood here in the city of Pittsburgh. Hey, Bill. Uh, I hesitate to say it, but good luck to you, my friend. <laughs> Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year to you as well. Okay, so John got schooled. I mean, he just he got ripped apart by the Word FM audience. Twenty six years ago, right? Uh, still okay. trying to still trying to recover from it. Um, talk about so this personal decision you made, or did you say something and people got on you about it? No, no, I don't. I, I didn't. Nobody got on me about it. I just, uh, you know, began to, you know, hear people say, you know, as a Christian, as you said earlier, 
that, you know, we labor under the blessings of God. So, and then I just began to meditate on that, that whole thing of good luck. And then I, you know, researched it. I was doing some research for a sermon uh, one time and then just found out that, you know, luck is actually a goddess. Now, you know, I, I'm not going to uh, rebuke or tell somebody that they're going to hell because they say good luck, you know, because uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm around it all the time and people are always saying good luck. Mm. You know, I, I kind of keep it, you know, to myself, you know, uh, I know for me that I, that I'm not trusting in luck. And usually when I hear people say that, it's just a reminder to me, you know, that I am trusting in the, the God of the universe. But, you know, I'm not going around, you know, looking for people who say good luck, you know, looking for an opportunity to rebuke them or, you know, again, uh, again to condemn them. You know, I, you know, you just you just look at things. And, and for me, you know, just like for me, again, uh, it seemed like the light turned on, uh, especially, you know, when you hear and, and I don't gamble anymore, but, you know, uh, you hear people gamble and they say, you know, luck be with me mm-hmm. or luck be a lady tonight. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, you know, you can look at that and say, well, that's just an expression that people are using. Uh, but are they really, you know, just saying that or, or are they saying, you know, maybe something lines up for me? Uh, you know, maybe the stars line up a certain way. They fall a certain way. Right. Or maybe there's some thing out there in the universe that uh it's it's kind of working in my favor and so i'm i'm asking that to to work in in my favor so you know i I began to you know look at that and say wow you know it it almost seems like you know luck is being deified you know when you when you look at that and then i i went back and began to research and to find out that there you know there was a the goddess of luck, you know, which uh, was referred to as Lady Luck. And, you know, over time, you know, the reality was is that people depicted luck in many ways. You know, one uh, depiction was luck was at the helm of a wheel uh, directing the events of the world. Uh, One is that she was holding the horn of plenty, which symbolized the patron goddess of wealth and riches. Uh, Another one, was she was balancing a ball which symbolized fortune, you know, that was unstable and that could go in any direction. And then another one is that she was blindfolded and symbolized risk and uncertainty. And so as I began to look at that, you know, I, I, for me, I saw, well, you know, there's, there's a little bit more to that. And, 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 and I will agree with you. I think that, you know, people that say it, you know, they, they innocently say it. I don't think that, you know, most of the people that, that probably say it, they're not, you know, really uh, thinking about, you know, uh, that they are trusting a certain uh, uh, force in the universe. But, you know, for me, that was the thing that, you know, kind of spoke to me. Yeah, and that's good. But I, I agree with all these things, Bill. And, and I also think that if there's good luck, then if you're believing in good luck, then there, you must also believe in mm-hmm. bad luck, right. which opens up right. a whole other sort of, you know, host of weirdness and yeah, questions, I- right? Right, exactly. Yeah, because, uh, you know, now then, you know, it's almost like you got the, the universe uh, that's working against you. And, you know, you, you 
if, if something if there's a force out there that's working against you and i mean you know and, and i don't want to necessarily get into the whole demonic thing, you know sure, thing sure. because we know that satan is out there we know that demon so i you know i'm kind of canceling that out and not talking about that but just in general you know just to say that you know uh that there's there's something out there that's that's working uh against me then you know that, that kind of makes it you know a, a little bit frustrating and makes you want to just throw your hands up in the air you know uh you know yeah i i, I was thinking about you know if, if you went to the library and you were uh, looking for a book you know then you you know you, you you've been looking for this book a long time and all of a sudden you see it on the shelf and you say wow man this is good luck you know this this book was there what well, was it luck that put the book there or, or was it the library just happened to you know have the book and they had it on the shelf at that time you know so uh you know you you begin to you know, evaluate things in a in a different uh, perspective. That's the Reverend Bill Glaze from Bethany Baptist Church in the Homewood section of Pittsburgh. Uh, Bill, one thing I've noticed since um, I also stopped saying good luck um, is that I, I think what I'm saying to people now is more what I actually mean. So if you know someone's performing or something, I'll say, I hope that goes well. Right. Which is really right. what I mean anyway. Right. You know what I mean? I don't right. mean good luck. So I feel like I'm kind of, I feel better about what I'm saying because it's the real thing now. Right, right. Yeah, you know, and, and, and that's the, the perspective because the fact is, is that, you know, God is with, you know, as, as far as believers, he's with us. And, you know, he, he can direct and guide uh, what we do. You know, I, you know, an interesting thing, uh, you know, uh, uh, um, Mason Rudolph, him, his dad, and myself were good friends. No way. Uh, we, yeah, we used to coach at Liberty University together. So, you know, his his name is Brett, and you know, I just, you know, I, I've been praying for for Mason a long time, hmm. and so, you know, do do you know, do I pray for? You know, like Mason, for luck to be with Mason, and for you know, for Mason to go out there and and, and be lucky. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I I've just been praying. I said, you know, Lord, uh, help him do uh, the best of his ability. Yeah. You know, because you know, there's there's Christians on the other team too. You know, sure. so so if, if the Christians on the other team, you know, if if they pray and you're praying, do you cancel each other's prayers out? You know, where you know where is God and all that? <laughs> right. You know, uh, but you know, some people might look at that and say, you know there was an element of luck there but you know i you know going back to what you said kathy i just i I just you know say god you know be with them and and help them to do their best you know not necessarily you know you know some people again have that expression break a leg or something like that you know uh i think that that's another one of those terms that you know you you want the opposite to happen so you know it's almost like you know you say that in in hopes of the person doing well right so i mean to be clear, saying good luck is just poor theology, right? Yeah, it's just right. foolish. Right. And, right. and I get, and I, th- I would say, Bill, let's end the conversation in some way the way we began it. If you choose to correct someone when they said, hey, good luck, which is, of course, you know, dicey territory to begin with, you want to do so with a little bit of winsomeness and a plum <laughs> so as not to crush someone, yeah? Right, right. Yeah, because, I, you know, Paul said, you know, speak the truth in love. So, you know, we, you know, we're to do it in such a way, uh, in, in, in gentleness and meekness, uh, not, you know, rebuke, uh, because again, I think that that has a tendency to turn people off more than it does to help them see what you're trying to say. I'm into that. Yeah. Okay, Bill. So, um, we're headed into a big game here on Saturday. Kathy and I were talking about this, how excited we are. So you've got a little connection here. Talk about that. I mean, are you still in contact with uh, Brett Rudolph? 
Yeah, you know, he, he when he comes to town, I think he was just in town uh, when when Mason started uh, yeah, cool. the, the week before. Yeah, uh, we didn't make a, a connection, but you know, uh, you know, usually if he's in town, you know, we you know we try to uh, make a little connection there. Yeah, but you know, and, and I know one thing. You know, again, I, I'm you know not casting any aspersion on anybody else because everybody is you know is is an athlete and they're doing their best. Sure. But I, I know I know Mason loves the Lord, man. You know, I know, I know that. I, I know his dad loves the Lord. Uh, I know Mason loves the Lord, and so that's why you know I've I've kind of you know behind the scenes been you know just yeah. hoping that you know, he gets his chance, and uh, it seems like he's getting his chance. So he sure I'm, is. Yeah. I'm, yeah. Isn't it weird when you mix Christianity and sports? I mean, people get so wacky. It's like, you know, uh, people only point toward the heavens when they score a touchdown. Right. But, you know, right. not when they're sacked. Or, you know, yeah, you right. only when you hit a home run, but, you know, not when you miss, right. a, you know, an easy fly ball. Nobody's pointing towards the heavens when they fumble. Exactly. Right. Right. <laughs> right. right. Yeah, that, yeah, that's a, a interesting perspective there. And you're exactly right. You know, so uh, I, I guess they... You know, I'm wondering, and I know we got to close, but you know, I'm wondering, is, is there some element of luck in that? You know, that when, when things happen good and people point up, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, you wonder, like, what what are we pointing toward? Like, what? Yeah, right. I, I don't know. And I don't want to judge anybody no, either. No, whatever. I just want, yeah, right. I, I do think it's worthwhile saying that uh, – there are Christians on all sides of every contest, of course, athletic yeah. contest. And the great thing is, is that a game is just something we can enjoy. Yep. Bill, hey, b- right. before you leave us, uh, New Year, uh, what's happening at Bethany this year? Well, you know, uh, I tell you what, since we've uh, opened our sanctuary and you guys were there for the yep. opening, Loved it. You know, it just seems like the Lord has just uh, blessed, you know, we're seeing uh, growth and, mm. uh, you know, uh, seeing, you know, people come forward uh, on a regular basis. And, you know, we are doing a next gen initiative. So we're seeing some young people getting more involved. Wonderful. So, you know, it's, uh, it's it's been a blessing. Excellent. Oh, that's so exciting. Um, if you've never been to Bethany Baptist in Homewood, Loved it. go visit. Very warm, Seriously, very it's inviting. so terrific. Thank you, Bill. All right. You guys have a happy new year. You as well. Bethany Baptist Church. That's the pastor, Bill Glaze. Information about Bethany Baptist. Uh, Bill's uh, programs here on Word FM. We'll take a quick break and come back. Uh, what about wearing socks when you go to sleep? Mm, we'll talk about that next. Stick around. Mm-hmm. You first married, of course, um, some odd and contentious arguments, mm-hmm. for lack of a better word, come up. Yeah. Uh, my wife, unbeknownst to me, was a regular sock wearer to bed. What? Which I thought, I still do think, what is happening there? Mm-hmm. I would never wear a pair of socks to bed. Never, never ever. I'm a hot sleeper. Yeah. Uh, I think if I wore socks to bed, I'd be, I'd be sweating all night long. Yeah. You're... Yeah, okay. Are you a sock? Uh, no, I'm not. But sometimes I wear the socks when I get into bed if I'm very cold. And then Just the, to I get always going. I yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So right, that, right. you know, at some point before I fall asleep, mm-hmm. they're going to exit. There's no question about it. Right. Yeah, cuz it, it's okay, here's it. Um, the Cleveland Clinic uh, says that if you wear socks to bed, you're going to sleep better. 
Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, now, why is that? Um, let me see here. Let me find this little piece. Um, so this article in the Wall Street Journal says this. It might seem that socks would make you too toasty, but counterintuitively, researchers say socks help lower core temperatures, a process that assists sleeps. That doesn't sleep. make any sense. Chilly feet can raise the temperature by sending more blood and heat to core areas, according to the Cleveland Clinic in this article. Uh, So what does adding in a fluffy pair of socks do? Those cuddly duds warm your feet, relaxing and widening blood vessels that constricted while cold. This improved blood circulation in your overall body helps release more heat through your skin. I don't know. I can't, I can't. I can't do that. I think it'd be way too hot. Okay. Think, are you an outside foot sleeper? No. Okay. Mm-mm. So I I always do have my feet outside the blankets. Really? Mm-hmm. See that? Then your your foot's cold. My foot isn't cold. It wants to be outside. But <laughs> really? <laughs> but. You're, so you're, the end of the bed is tucked in, nice and tight. Uh, I, I always they come out the side. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. The feet come out the side. Now, <laughs> now strangely so enough, weird. getting into some getting into specifics that nobody asked for. <laughs> Bring it. Uh, my husband, uh, he is very concerned about his level of blanketure. Okay. Of course, yes. He does not like a lot of blankets. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we can never agree on the kind, right, right. On, on the blanket setup. That's us as well. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We just can never agree. Right, right. So what he does, and I'm just going to out him right here because I think, I think it's just crazy. He sleeps with a short blanket on him. So the blanket that he sleeps under only comes down to like maybe mid-calf. <laughs> How's it stays put? It doesn't. Right. So and bunch up. I think mm-hmm. it would be. And, and also, I don't think it's very soft, but that's his choice. Sure. And then in the winter, he wears slippers. <laughs> okay. I mean, everyone's so sleep the, routine so, is so very in weird. In the summer, the feet, his feet are out because that's very important to that's him. That's fine. But for some reason in the winter, instead of maybe putting like using a longer blanket or something, yeah. he's chosen to sleep in slippers. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could do, I mean, anybody listening right now, either nodding their head or shaking their head going, that sounds like me, or I could do that. That's a lot. Yeah. Slippers, don't they get caught up in the, I mean, I'm twisting and turning all night long. So I, can, I, I don't understand anything about it. Yeah. Sleep is weird. I mean, yeah. everybody has their own yeah. routine. I'll tell you another thing. I sleep, every minute I'm asleep, I have a special pillow between my knees. What? Yep. There's a lot going on there. That it's it's good for your hips and back. Okay, fine. I recommend it. I, I can't do any of that. I'm just going. I have a sheet, and then in wintertime, the comforter, and I'm good to go. And then you know, there's extra layers from the other side. It's just very complex. Heaven help us. It's hard to get a good night's sleep sometimes, isn't it? listen to the show over the years, you know that I am the sixth of seven kids. My mother was a very uh, solid Christian Catholic woman, and uh, my father was not. He was Protestant. But uh, as they got married, my mother said, this is how it's going to be. We are, we're going to do the rhythm method. 
Now, years later, they would say, we were good dancers, but we had no rhythm, (laughs) which I'm grateful for because six of seven, I made it into this world. So thank you for that. So uh, it does beg the question about how we look or think or and or use contraception in 2024. Right. The introduction of the pill essentially changed the landscape Mm -hmm. here in America. Well, there is a a big gulf, and I believe even still in this country, between Catholics and the rest of the world. And I think there's a big gulf between practicing Catholics. That's the sticker. And those who say they're Catholic but, you know, don't practice practice the the contraceptive mandates. So what of contraception? Dr. Charles Camosi is back with us. Charlie's been a friend of ours many years. He's professor of of medical humanities at the Creighton University School of Medicine, also the author of several books. His latest is called Bioethics for Nurses, a Christian Moral Vision, here today to talk to us about contraception. Hey, Charlie. Hey, guys. Great to be with you again. So, Charlie, uh, do you agree with me that there there is a gulf between the Catholic perspective on contraception and the and the non-Catholic perspective, but also a gulf, uh, as John put it, between people who are practicing and basically abiding by the Catholic Church's teaching and those who go to a Catholic Church but don't? Well, before I answer that, let me just say I'm still trying to get um, John's parents analogy out of my head before I uh, before I get 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 going here. It's the tango, Charlie. Um, no, I, 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 I got a. I, I really said I, I didn't get to meet your parents because they sound like great people. They but, were. Um, they were. Um, that Kathy, that's totally absolutely right. In fact, I'd say probably depending on which study you look at. Somewhere between 80 and 90 percent of self-described Catholics just simply ignore the church's teaching on this, and wow. I mean, frankly, are kind of embarrassed by it, right? Um, and there was this big, right around the time that this was coming to a head in our culture in the 60s and 70s, it was the big meeting of the Second Vatican Council in the Catholic Church where a lot of things were changed, and they, they a lot of people thought they would change on this as well. And they didn't, and that made a lot of people upset, <laughs> and that are still upset about it. I, as we might talk about a little bit later through this interview, I, I happen to think that that was an inspired choice, though, by the Catholic Church to not change it, and a lot of what they predicted would come true um, has, in fact, come true. Yeah. So for for people who are practicing Catholics and choose to not use contraception, uh, Charlie, you sent us a really interesting piece. For a lot of women today, this is a radical feminist move, isn't it? Yeah, in in many cases, it has absolutely nothing to do with faith. It's coming from a secular, almost kind of like crunchy environmentalist eco Mm -hmm. perspective. Like, why am I... Why am I putting this in my body again? And who's telling me that I need this? And I was just as before we got on, I was actually embarrassed to say watching a clip from a Joe Rogan episode where he had on Dr. Dr. Deborah So, and they were talking about the effect that contraception has on the woman's body and how many times uh, there's actually studies to show this. Apparently, um, a woman who meets uh, her partner while on the pill, mm. um, and w- when she gets off the pill, is no longer no attracted longer interested, to him. That's right? How, yeah, yeah. So what what kind of and there's all sorts of other effects 
on women's bodies. And so there's a feminist kind of eco-feminist, to use a mm-hmm. academic phrase, perspective on this that says that's kind of crunchy, that's environmentally conscious, that says, well, what is actually going on here if we just are essentially coercing, is that too strong a word, uh, women from very early ages, from the time they're girls, right, um, 14, 15 years old, to be on this for most of their lives. Right. Okay, so I'm sorry, I jumped ahead. Then tell us specifically your understanding of what Catholic teaching on contraception is. Right. So it goes back as, and thank you for having me on to ask all these tough questions of Catholics, because <laughs> I'm sure a lot of your listeners are like, dude, what the heck's going on with Catholics about this? Um, but it really does it really does come back to the Bible, as I think in all of our interviews, um, I've at least tried to say that it, it really does come down to what, in Genesis, God commanded us to do, to be fruitful and multiply. And that sex is, in a Catholic sense, um, connected to two things, uh, unification of the couple, the love and total self-gift of the couple, and um, with that total self-gift, being open to God's command to be fruitful, multiply, open to contraception. And so contraception of its very nature is designed to sort of cut that off, to say we can have the unification without the being open to procreation. Now, it does work the other way, too. Like, the church has been very outspoken about that no procreation without unification. So I I just wrote an article for Religion News Service that's coming out today, which engages the fact that we're about to apparently have a company that's going to try to um, monetize a huge mar- artificial womb system, right? Where well, you say, well, you want to have a baby outside of, um, you know, outside of sex. We got you covered. We're going to do this on a massive scale when an artificial womb is available. And and so so it goes both ways. It's not some peculiar thing, but but yeah, that's the basic Catholic teaching. Every every sex act needs to be about unification of the couple, total self gift, and open to God's command to be fruitful and multiply as well. Okay. All right, so we have that as teaching on one side, and then let's talk about culture on the other side. Um, I have right. two daughters, uh, obviously a female myself, and I was surprised uh, when my daughters were like. I don't know, 14 or 15 years old, that was brought up at a pediatrician's appointment. Like, mm-hmm. What are your plans for your daughter's right. birth control? And I, and fortunately, I had a really outstanding pediatrician, and that did not come from him. It came from one of the yeah. nurse practitioners that, that were there at the time. But it was surprising how much pushback I got Um in saying I didn't want to put my, I wasn't going to put my girls on birth control. Um, and when I said they weren't having sex, of course, the nurse was like, oh, yeah, that's what every mother thinks. And I was like, <laughs> I, right. I mean, how am I going to prove it? I don't I, I Look, I don't know what to tell you other than I know my daughters. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I, I'm not saying they're perfect. I'm just saying I know they're not having sex. So it, it is a cultural push, um, especially when you've got girls that are between the ages of 12 and 16. Um, and so this uh, this movement toward being more, as you called it, like earthy, nutty, crunchy, and saying, why am I putting uh, hormones in my body if I don't need them, I think is a necessary uh, pendulum swing from where from where we were before, not even counting the theological or, you know, faith practice or implication of it. Absolutely. And that's, that's what I find so striking about this is there's a very clear secular 
don't know if it's fair to call it a movement, but certainly a significant minority who are who are challenging just for the, for the reasons you just mentioned. And even if um, you know our our kids are having sex without us knowing, which of course never happens, right? Never. Let's think about uh, never. Um, let's think about what's happened with, with regard to sex since the birth control pill came came about. Maybe we've had fewer pregnancies, but the sexually transmitted infection rate has gone dramatically up, mm-hmm. right? Which is not surprise, which is not surprising, of course, because um, the pill does absolutely nothing to control sexually transmitted infections. And in addition to doing nothing, it actually makes them more likely because people who are on the pill or having sex with somebody they know is on the pill sort of imagines themselves as safer, right? As, oh, I'm in this safe sex situation, even though there's absolutely no reason to think that's the case at, at, at all. And so uh, counterintuitively, maybe, we can maybe tell a story, can't we, about how the birth control pill has led to more sexually transmitted infections because we tell kids that this is safe sex and I feel safe and I have riskier sex because I know that I'm not going to get pregnant or I'm not going to get the person pregnant or I suspect there's always a failure rate. But So there's that part of it too. It's it's actually um, had this effect that that, that maybe we didn't anticipate. Um, and anybody can just Google sexually transmitted infection rates and see the graph go up and up and up and up. Mm-hmm. But there is, Charlie, um, this, let's go back to this, the basics, the clear delineation between uh, ca- the church's teaching, Catholic teaching on birth control, and Protestants, yeah. right? I mean, yeah, uh, that's right. uh, I, I remember talking to a friend of mine, he would say years ago, John, seven kids? I mean, your poor parents, <laughs> you, you suffered as a result of that. Not that your parents were abusive, but who had time for seven kids? So your parents never really knew you, or you really never knew your parents. And, I, I, you know, maybe there's some truth to that, but be fruitful and multiply, yeah? And, I mean, I don't know how to really express this well, but isn't there something about our culture that shifted with smaller families? Like we, because people have at most one or two kids now, except in unusual situations. And by the way, it's really interesting to see the cultural reaction to large families now. It sure is. Like, they think it's like a circus or, or like a cult. this is right. ridiculous right. or a cult, you know? Like I've even hear, heard, I have fa- I have friends with with large families, and they will regularly hear things like, "Well, the circus has come to town today." Exactly. Or like that. What yeah. the heck? Right. You know, like, um, so that's part of it. Like we have a kind of hostility to this, but yeah. it's not just that kind of hostility. It's a like a, I don't know. Can we talk about a? you know, like a cultural move away from extended families and extended localities that, well, of course, you you know, two parents can't take care of seven kids, but it wasn't just the two parents, right? And often it would be a, you know, one of the parents would be a full-time parent, so that would change the deal as opposed to two working parents and aunts and uncles and cousins. And then, of course, you know, you had older brothers and sisters that were responsible for you as well, right? Sure. For for much of your life, which is sort of like one of the lost things about this that of course the older sister who is 10 years older than the youngest child would have a significant role to play in caregiving that was a good thing not a bad thing the siblings are tight and well connected and part of a larger ecosystem family ecosystem of aunts uncles and cousins like i said and the church community and the local neighborhood and all that stuff is not totally gone away but with with the with um 
with going to one or two children, it wasn't as necessary anymore, right? We don't think about it that way anymore. And so I don't know if it's a chicken or egg problem, but that's part of what's going on here as well, I think. Charlie, stay with us. We're going to take a break. We're talking to Dr. Charlie Camosi, professor of medical humanities at the Creighton University School of Medicine. We're talking about contraception, uh, Catholic perspective, Protestant perspective, cultural perspective. Uh, we're trying to kind of, I don't know, look at it from all different sides. And uh, we'll be right back. It's Thursday edition, The Ride Home. We're back with Dr. Charlie Camosi, professor of medical humanities at the Creighton University School of Medicine. Charlie's the author of a bunch of books, including Resisting Throwaway Culture. Um, and today we're talking about the thorny issue of contraception. Um, Charlie, in our first segment, we talked about how there is a movement of uh, especially young women who are kind of what I call the granola type, um, who are looking at doing away with contraception, um, at least the pill in particular, because of their concerns about putting something extra chemically into their body um, that they don't need. Uh, and so, and of course, I completely uh, understand that. Um, but as I was reading some of the articles that you and John and I were kind of, you know, passing back and forth, uh, you know what I thought of repeatedly? I thought, you know, this is a really interesting and important conversation. I am not, I, I was on the pill for a very short period of time in my life. I didn't like it. Um, I think that it's way overprescribed, in my opinion. But I am informed uh, in that perspective by being a woman who is educated, who was from a small family, right? My parents only had two children that were 12 years apart. Um, and so a lot of the things that help me to think the kind of thoughts I have are, even though I don't like to admit it, from uh, are a result of the feminist revolution that happened, you know, from the start of the uh, 20th century until now. Um, and, you know, there were, there were thousands of years where women had no choices um, and women were uh, basically just waiting for their life to happen to them. And so I realized that a lot that the choices that I've had are the choices that women in most of world history didn't have. Even to this day. Even to this day. So, Charlie, I, I guess, you know, you're the dad of daughters. Um, and so your thoughts on that? Yeah, the, a really helpful Kathy-esque challenge. I appreciate <laughs> that. Um, um, so... I, I don't know anyone that wants to make contraception illegal as a as a choice. That's that ship has sailed. I think. Sure. What I do think, what I do think, though, is that a lot of women, including, let's face it, your daughters, if they didn't have, if they weren't raised by you and didn't have a lot of your traits, independence, and and whatnot, might have felt that like they didn't have much of a choice. Like I, that's the experience of a lot of women I've talked to say, well. My doctor just basically told me this is what you do when you're 14, 15 years old, right? And for a certain kind of um, person who is just like doctor knows best, you just sort of get on it. Or in another sense, it's kind of culturally coerced, right? If you say, well, in order, if you want to be a, a girl or a young woman uh, dating today, you got to participate in hookup culture. That's just part of the sort of ticket for dating, if we even want to call it dating. Mm -hmm. And if you want to participate in hookup culture, you best be on contraception, right? Because the obvious reasons. Um, and so is that really a choice? Like, what are you telling me? I either have to forego dating and being around boys um, 
if I don't participate in hookup culture, which presumes contraception and abortion, frankly, we should talk about that too mm, as the right. as the backup, right? So, um, well, that doesn't sound like much of a choice either, right? But that's the the quote unquote choice that so many women and girls are 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 quote unquote given today. It's really not. So, so if we were in fact about empowering women to choose whether or not to put these um, drugs and hormones into their body to essentially trick their body into thinking it's pregnant most of their lives. Um, let's actually give them a choice, right? Let's actually say, well, we want to create a culture that doesn't make it a coercive situation. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We want to create a culture that says you can date boys without this expectation that you're going to put this pill in your body. We, 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 you don't need to worry about going to the doctor and being essentially coerced or forced or, you know, people reacting so negatively to you saying, no, it's, it's just something that's out there as a genuine choice. So, so, I mean, a long way of saying, let's make it a genuine choice for people. If that's what we're, if that's what we're after. Right. Charlie, it's very complex. Yeah. I and mean, there are, we could talk about this for days and weeks yep. and, you know, not hit all the perspectives on it. And I'm sure that our, um, I'm sure that our listeners, you know, are, Maybe sometimes some of them shouting at the radio. Some saying, "Yeah, that's exactly what I think." Right, right. But I, but through all of it, we appreciate you being here and offering your perspective. Yeah, and, and if we if you want to come back, have me on again. Um, the the whole relationship between abortion and contraception. Yes, yeah. Abortion and contraception is a huge huge topic all by itself. Yeah, so. definitely. Worth Charlie, with a few about. seconds left, uh, people want to find you online. You referenced uh, earlier today a religion news service article. Um, people can find you online. Yeah, on social media at C Camosi, C C A M O S Y, and CharlesCamosi.com. Very nice. Always a pleasure, Charlie. Thanks so much. Happy New Year to you. We, uh, we love having you with us in your unique perspective. We'll take uh, a break. We're stepping away. It's the, uh, the end of the hour. Stick around. We're going to get underway deeper with archaeological finds. That's the 5 o'clock hour here on the ride home. Pittsburgh's Christian Talk. It's Word FM. Welcome to another edition of The Ride Home with John and Kathy, live from the Salem-Pittsburgh studios. And now, here are your hosts, John Hall and Kathy Emmons. The question is, what is the best time to eat dinner? Mm-hmm. Every family, of course, follows their own guidelines. They're, they're sort of conducted by schedules, of course, kids' schedules at school, sports schedules, parents' schedules as far as work's concerned. Right. Um, Band. Yeah. Choir. Wrestling, football, baseball, Mm -hmm. you name it, right? Um, I think probably a lot of families don't eat together on a regular basis, right? right? You're eating by yourself or you're having a hot pocket or whatnot. Mm -hmm. But if you're sitting down with your family, the optimal time, Wall Street uh, Street Journal article says the best time in America, at least uh, according to their survey, is 6.19 p.m. 6.19 6.19 p.m. Mm-hmm. Now, now here's the thing, though. That's the time that Americans usually eat. Mm-hmm. But they said that the best time is just whenever, whatever time it is, it's four hours before bedtime. Well, then you and I are on top of that, right? Yeah. So we're generally eating 7, 7.30, 8. Right. 
So <laughs> if you go to bed at midnight, I guess we're okay. Right. Right. But yeah, but they're saying that you eat at that time and then you stop eating. <laughs> <laughs> That's my problem. Which generally for me, I don't eat all day and right. then I get home and right. I eat everything in the history of America. Exactly. Exactly. Right? Okay. So this is what they say. The most important factor in the dinner time calculus is melatonin, mm. the hormone that signals that it's time to sleep. Melatonin begins to rise about three hours before we go to bed, but at the same time, Time, it also tells the pancreas to cut back on insulin production. So if we have a sugar spike after eating late, our body has a harder time regulating blood sugar. So this could put us at risk of diabetes and other metabolic disorders. So for that reason, the ideal dinner time is three to four hours before bed and what we eat matters too. So my cookie splurge Mm-hmm. An hour before bed, it uh, turns out, is not recommended. <laughs> not good at all. Now, Darn are, it. Don't you torture yourself? Because I do this. If I'm eating something like a snack, 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 yes. and it's 10 o'clock, yeah. I'm hating it, but I'm still doing I'm it. I'm still doing it. But then Ridiculous. it's not nearly as much as I'm going to hate myself in the morning when I look back on it. Mm-hmm. It's, really, it's, it's really sad. You mean after you get on the scale? No, it doesn't even... Mm. I just know it mentally. I don't even need to see the number in front of me. Anyway, late night eating can cause the body to store more fat and reduce levels of leptin. That's the hormone that tells your brain when you're full. That's according to a 2022 study from researchers at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. I don't have that gene on me. (laughs) Well, you might want to be studied uh, further. Anyway, a 2018 study from endocrinologists in Japan showed that people with type 2 diabetes who ate dinner after 8 p.m., had poorer blood sugar control. Heck. We're due. So like we're, like we're due for diabetes? I, I think so. P- poorer now, blood here, sugar here, control. Now, yes. So also it can affect sleep quality, eating too late. Um, and that can lead to hormonal fluctuations that can cause weight gain. I mean, everything is bad. Put your socks on. Yeah. and <laughs> That's <laughs> that funny. We talked about hour. that in the four o'clock hour. Going to bed on a full stomach can also exacerbate acid reflux, okay. which I don't have. I don't either. Okay. So we don't, we don't care about that. No, that's fine. <laughs> These poor people who suffer. Oh, I'm sorry for them. Yeah. Anyway. The ritual of gathering for dinner, they said, began when there were hunt- when we were all hunter gatherers, sure. right? And so everybody had to be home before dark to get the fire going. Yep. So everybody was out walking all day, hunting and gathering their stuff. Seventeen thousand plus steps. Which is slightly more than I'm getting. (laughs) And then they would come back before dark, get the fire going, eat, and then go to sleep. Makes sense. Now we've got lights and electronics and television and streaming and whatnot. No one's going to bed. No. Nobody's going to bed. The heck. So some nightly movement, even a brisk walk around the block before or after dinner can help regulate your blood sugar before your pancreas turns in for the night. All right. That would be a good thing to do. Put your pancreas to bed. I don't do that. Mm -mm. And I I know that I'm much the worse for it. Well, with a dog, I I do do that. Oh, yeah. I take a little walk with a dog, right? Do you do that after dinner? Yes. Oh, do you? Yes. Okay. All right. I feel good about it. Okay. Well, you should feel good about that because that apparently yields a lot of benefits. Then, of course, the Wall Street Journal article that we're referencing goes on to talk about American families eating dinner together less than they used to due to all the scheduling conflicts you mentioned. Which is a shame. I mean, That's I, a real shame. I love dinner time. Didn't you love dinner time with your kids? Yeah, of course. Everyone's catching up. Everyone's contributing. What happened to you? Here's the story. This is what went on. Yada, yada. I mean, I, it's, it's very rich. So uh, a 2021 study found that parents who eat dinner 
with their families, yep. as you're discussing, before 6.15 p.m., spend more quality time with their kids in the evening. Mm-hmm. Because... Yeah, the light is a longer night. Right. The, so well, let's dinner, play a game. Dinner time's over. Right, yeah. Um, lastly, the Wall Street Journal today warns against getting too hung up on meal timing because they said schedules differ. What works for one family is not going to work for another. Of course. But the best dinner time is the one you can stick to. Mm-hmm. Somewhere in the ballpark, right? Right, right, right. Uh, this woman by the name of Penny Goffman, who was uh, interviewed for the article, she lives in Connecticut, she's adamant about an early dinner time for her family because she and her husband are, in her words, green smoothie people. She said timing dinner requires careful planning since their kids that are 11 and 14 have sports. They've got homework. So she maps out the week. This is the kind of person that I always resented. They were able to do this. She maps out the week's meals on the weekends, writes them on a dry erase board so no one has to ask what's for dinner. They eat no later than 6.30 p.m. Monday through Thursday. And by 7 p.m., she says... The kitchen is closed. Man, that's a buttoned-up family. What do you think? That's a lot. I couldn't do that. That's <laughs> no, just not me. Not. No, the dry erase board. Sometimes it's like six thirty, and we're going. Uh, not sometimes. Often. Yo, often. What are we having for dinner? Eggs, mm, which is the always uh, the answer in the Emmons household. Yeah, we should yeah. have eggs. Okay, that's all. Right. We should have eggs. All right. Anyway, whatever time you're eating, try to eat together as a family. Try to eat together as a family, mm-hmm. and I should. We should really try to eat earlier. I guess. All right, we'll take a quick break. We're going to come back. I got to stop the cookie thing at night. No, to me, that's like the joy of the day. I know. It really Mm -hmm. is. We're going to talk about biblical archaeology's top 10 discoveries of 2023. Stay with us. Pittsburgh's Christian Talk. It's the ride home. Most people have a little bit of the explorer in them, right? Mm-hmm. Whether you're out and about yourself with your you know, metal detector or you're out digging in the garden and finding a bone or a rock of something that interests you, right? But, but what about the professionals among us? And what about archaeology uh, itself, especially ancient archaeology? Well, Gordon Govier is back with us again. Gordon writes about biblical archaeology for Christianity Today. He hosts the archaeology radio program called The Book and the Spade, also the editor of Artifacts, but he wrote a piece at CT, Biblical Archaeology's Top 10 Discoveries of 2023. Gordon, welcome back. Hey, John, it's good to be with you. Thanks for inviting me back. Our pleasure. Uh, Gordon, before we talk about some of the particulars that you've laid out in this article, John and I were wondering, uh, as we were waiting for you to come on the air, what the conflict in Gaza has done for uh, archaeology. I mean, of course, our main concern is the lo- is the loss of life and the suffering that's going on there. But, I mean, just l- I was in Germany a couple years ago, and, you know, it, you can't, you know, walk more than 20 steps in one of the major cities without being confronted with something that was lost during World War II. Um, So I'm sure the same thing would be happening there today? Well, yes. In fact, um, that was one of the issues that I wrestled with. I was was putting together this top 10 list. I mean, where do you start? And you have this big thing that's going on in Israel. So um, as I started putting together this top 10 list, I started with uh, destruction and doom and war because it had an impact. And In fact, there was uh, some interesting archaeology going on that was reported in September. They found some first century burials in Gaza, 
you know, this is the time of Jesus, and Gaza was an important city all through the ancient world. So that's where I started. And when I started putting the article together, I didn't know what had happened if even anybody survived that was doing the archaeology. Hmm. And I, I did get a response from the French archaeologist who was leading the excavation. So I knew that he was still alive. But, I, you know, my assumption is that this whole excavation is underneath rubble. Right. Many things will be lost. There's no doubt about that. So, Gordon, uh, in the interest of time, because uh, we're always looking at the clock, let's talk about uh, your number one discovery, which is uh, the Jerusalem Mysterious Moat. Tell us about this, please. Yeah, well, this is um, this wasn't even my number one discovery because I didn't know about it when I was starting to put the list together. I have three number one discoveries, but the original one is now number two, and this popped into number one with an article in late in the fall that the archaeologists who had been working on this excavation just outside the, the Dungate, uh, just outside the walls of Jerusalem, it's called the Givadi Car Park Excavation. And they've been working here for 15 years, I think, probably. And so you can imagine going down level by level through the history of Jerusalem until you hit bedrock. And when they got to bedrock, they found this ditch or depression. And as they studied it, they realized it was a moat. And they had no idea. There's nothing in history or scripture or anywhere that talks about a moat in Jerusalem, hmm. except maybe um, there's there's one word that appears several times in the Old Testament, the millow. And it talks about uh, David working on the millow, Solomon working on the millow. They have no idea what that was. Maybe this is the millow that they found it. That's absolutely fascinating. So what's what's been on top of it? Uh, level after level of occupation, you know, dirt yeah. and um, that makes sense. They've, when they first started on this excavation 15 years ago, one of the first things they found was a, the palace of uh, Queen Helena from Adiabene, uh, which is a country over in Mesopotamia. She converted to Judaism and moved to Jerusalem. And in the first century, there's some record of, of what she did there. And she built apparently a rather um, ostentatious home, and that was one of the first things they excavated. And that was from the first century, and they've gone down down through the various levels. Uh, Gordon, can we talk about DNA? Uh, one of the things that you wrote about is ancient Israelite DNA, which I had never considered. First of all, tell us about the discovery, and then we'll talk about what that might mean. Well, they found the remains of... Um, humans, bodies, Jewish people in a Jewish tomb just west of Jerusalem. And um, this, is, this is kind of rare. Uh, they haven't had finds like this where they could actually ex extract the DNA that supposedly would give researchers some um, indication of the, the history of the Jewish people, you know, where, where they came from. And uh, so there was going to be a a conference where this information will be talked about, and that conference was postponed because of the Hamas war. So we'll have to wait and find out more of the details of this discovery until later. Interesting. We're talking with Gordon Govier. He's got a piece in CT, Biblical Archaeology's Top Ten Discoveries of 2023. Uh, I always love, uh, Gordon, to think about archaeology, and especially in the Holy Land where Jesus was. So tell us, please, about Siloam, the disappointment of Siloam, because this is a place, biblically, we know that Jesus was. 
Yeah, this fits into just kind of the the darkness of this year's top 10 list. Usually when you talk about archaeology, you think of something that uh, was totally unexpected and and then became a great discovery like the Dead Sea Scrolls. In this case, the archaeologists found the Pool of Siloam from the time of Jesus back in 2004 when Hmm. there was a sewer project going on. So... They uncovered these steps as they were working on this project, and they said, oh, this is this is the Pool of Siloam, and they only had one side of the pool because the rest of the area was covered in an orchard, and they didn't want to disrupt the orchard. Well, that was almost 20 years ago, and finally they said, you know, we, we want to find out what else is there. So they, they raised the orchard. And they started digging, and they didn't find any more results from the Pool of Siloam. I think what happened was uh, an early road was built on top of the one wa- the one area of steps that still exists today where you can go to Jerusalem and see them. But the rest of the stones from the other three sides of the pool were robbed out and used in other projects. Interesting. So, Gordon, uh, this happens all the time, right? Someone finds a site, archaeologists are called in, and I'm sure local authorities, homeowners, neighborhoods, they all throw up their hands because they know there's going to be disruption. I mean, archaeology is a very slow, arduous process. Patience is key here. Yeah, it really is. And and it happens all over Israel. I mean, Israel is, as a country is an archaeological excavation area. And practically anywhere you would excavate, you could find something. So the law says when you start a road project or a supermarket or whatever you're going to build, um, if you find anything that's of archaeological interest, you have to call in the archaeologists mm-hmm. and have them dig it, or at least do a survey first to try and find out what's there. So that happens all the time. And most of that work, I think now, from what I can understand, is uh, kind of on hold until they get past this big disruption of the Hamas war. There has been some archaeology that's been going on. In fact, um, actually, this is breaking news. This has not been reported anywhere else uh, except uh, one of my friends on Facebook. The the story today is that um, the results of some excavations at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre have been announced. Now, this is the church that was built around 335 A.D. by the Roman Emperor Constantine over the what was believed to be the grave of Jesus, as well as um, Golgotha, where he was crucified. And uh, just before Christmas, the archaeologists from Rome Sapienza University briefed the leaders of the Holy Sepulchre's three principal churches on their most recent excavations. They postponed it for a couple months after the war started, but then they started again in December. And uh, one of my contacts is on the pastoral staff of another church in Jerusalem and reports what they have uncovered continues to be astounding. According to tradition and ancient records, the tomb of Christ was located in a quarry just outside the walls of Jerusalem. Through the combination of excavations and probes, they found the quarry in this area in front of the tomb and they found out it sloped rather steeply from the northwest to the southeast and they also found a portion of a small road that was built about the time of christ across the quarry site so if you go to the church of the holy sepulcher today you'll see under the rotunda this small marble structure that's called the edicule and that surrounds what's believed to be the tomb of christ and in this area 
They found the foundation remains of Constantine's first monument around Christ's tomb, known as the Anastasis. And what they've found is that it was circular, measured about 20 feet in diameter, and it was surrounded by 12 columns. And because there was a water collection channel at this level, they thought that this earliest version was maybe out in the open air, and then later a roof of the rotunda was built across it. Wow. That's breaking news. That's fascinating. I love that so much, Gordon. Thank you for this. Wow. Gordon Govier is with us. Um, he hosts the archaeology radio program, The Book and the Spade. He's also the editor of Artifacts. Um, talking about an article that he wrote for CT on biblical archaeology. Um, for those of our listeners who have read or are currently reading the book of Acts, you can't escape it without having the city of Antioch on your mind. Mm. Um, and Antioch figures into one of the uh, archaeological discoveries of last year. Can you tell us about it? Yeah, this was a story that came out originally at the beginning of the year where archaeologists were talking about moving into some areas in Antioch where the church was originally, where Christians were first called Christians. So there's a lot of um, history from that area. And then on February 7th, there was a huge earthquake and Antakya, the modern city, was one of the worst hit areas, almost totally destroyed. So um, what we may have anticipated might be found there about the early Christian churches, the history of the early church um, is under rubble, probably, just um, like what's happened in Gaza. Gordon, can you talk about, um, and we have uh, only a minute left, so I might be setting you up unfairly, uh, but I, I just, I wonder for people who think that, oh, these are just a bunch of Bible stories, um, this is a, a fable, this is just like reading Greek myths, um, can you talk about what how archaeology figures into how you think of things and how it might change how people look at the scriptures? Well, I think it shows the unique character of the Christian and Jewish faiths that that's grounded in history. You know, archaeology is history that you can hold in your hand. And when you find something like the Dead Sea Scrolls, you know, it takes you back 2,000 years ago and was incredible to help us understand how the Bible came together um, because some of the Dead Sea Scrolls are word for word exactly like, um, say, the book of Isaiah was 2,000 years ago. It's the same today. Uh, and there were some changes, too, and it's always interesting. To, you know, that gives the scholars something to talk about and to argue about. Mm-hmm. So it just shows the historical foundation of our Christian faith, and that's what really attracts me to it. I'm, I'm all into context. And with biblical archaeology, you've got um, context that um, you wouldn't have otherwise. Excellent. Well, Gordon, it's fascinating. We certainly uh, appreciate and honor your work as it informs us in our Christian faith. If people want to know more about you and follow you, of course, your podcast and your books, you can easily be found online. Can you not? Tell us about that. Uh, I have a website. Um, You can find it at radioscribe.com, and um, you can listen to uh, each week's episode of my radio program. I've been doing this for 40 years, a new program every week. Wow. Thank you, Gordon. It's been a pleasure and honor to have you with us. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Gordon Govier, he's in CT this week, Biblical Archaeology's Top 10 Discoveries of 2023. Does this make sense? It does what make sense? Train travel. 
I don't mean the moving around of manufacturing goods or manufactured goods. Uh, Passengers. I'm talking about sitting your bum on a train and going somewhere. I want it to make sense more than anything. I would love... I mean, when our parents were younger, you take a train from Swissvale to downtown Pittsburgh. Mm. And that was just like taking the bus. Right. My dad's family used to come from New Ken to Kennywood. That's how they'd... Make the trip. My grandfather worked in the railroad, hit a lifetime pass. He traveled the country mm. by train. Of course, Amtrak is a mess. Right. Although they are adding a, an additional route here to New York City, which is good news. I was just at the train station last night. The train picking station? Picking up my daughter. Is, it's a trailer. It's really it's a trailer. It's, it's really embarrassingly it's a, terrible. Surely it is. It makes perfect sense. But we as a country made a decision. Are we going to go by car or by train? This was in the 50s during right. the Eisenhower administration. We chose the car, of course, because who doesn't want to be in their car? Right. So you're saying yes or no? It makes perfect sense, You yes. think it makes perfect yes. sense? I mean, I feel like it makes perfect sense, too. Yeah. But being at the train station last night, Sad. I have to tell you, it Dangerous. is... It's not what you... We've just we've come a long way from the romantic train station. Right. And what's funny is the beautiful train station that's right above you when you're in the Pittsburgh train station yeah, of course. is used for wedding receptions. Right. And or the, apartments. Or apartments. And the people who are actually taking the train are, you know, down in some subterranean Trailer. hole. All right. Does this make sense? Mm. A daily multivitamin. Oh. The multivitamin. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I believe it makes sense, but here's the thing. I have no evidence. Neither do I. I have no evidence, so I'm totally going on faith that that, that, uh, that it's doing anything at all. My wife is the apostle of the daily multivitamin. Is she? She yes. is. And so, you know, I've suffered through this illness. Right. She's, take a vitamin. So I've been doing it now for maybe six weeks. Has it revolutionized your life? I don't know. I don't know. Has it helped? Maybe. I'm not even sure. I don't know. Right. How over, do you know? Then over Christmas, someone said, you should also be taking a B12 supplement, which I, I've never done that. Now, right. Now I'm going to take now fish I, oil. Now, in the past, and, I've brought this up to you, and you've poo-pooed it. I know. Well, the poo-poo days are gone, Gaff. <laughs> okay, so you thought it didn't make sense, and now you've come I'm around? I'm saying it makes sense. I'm going to give it a shot. Okay. Because uh, what I else feel, do I got? I mean, I feel like it makes sense, but I don't know. I can't. You're not taking one either. I forget. Does your husband? Of course, of course he does. So you'll be taking one yeah, soon at some exactly. point as well. All right. Train travel makes sense? Yeah. Multivitamins make sense? Yeah, but really no evidence for it. I think most people love little nuggets of facts. Right, historical things, or you know, what's going on in the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, like the whole Guinness Book of World's Record, in some ways, about that. Right. right. I got an, a, a text message from my. We have a five of us from high school have a little text strand oh. that we keep up with. And today's question was: uh, Name a song from the 1983-84 window. And I'll tell my friend was like, I'll tell you if it was in the top 10 during that amount. So little factoids like that. I like that. Yep, exactly. And of course, with the Internet, it makes everything so easy. Well, the Atlantic, which we subscribe to, uh, they said this over the past year, the writers at Atlantic Science 
they have been looking at the nature of the world, and they have 81 things that blew their minds in 2023. Now, they're not going to do anywhere near 81, but I'll do a few quick ones, okay. which I think are very interesting. All right. Okay. Mars has seasons, and in the winter, it snows. Really? <laughs> it snows on Mars? Oh, that's fascinating. That is really wild, isn't it? <laughs> that's so cool. Mammal milk. Please, this year, would you watch For All Mankind? I started watching it. was kind of like what? a soap opera. It, it's made for you, I for know, crying out weird. loud. Is it? What is it on? Apple. All right. Okay, go ahead. Well, you interrupted my mammal Sorry, milk. Sorry. <laughs> I got excited about Mars. Mammal milk changes depending upon the time of day, a baby's age and sex, the mom's diet, and more. That it's really fascinating. That is a really fascinating thing. What the heck? Isn't that the fine tuning it is of God's it's creation? Just incredible. I mean, talk about made to order. Oh my gosh. Right? Have it your right, way, right? right? The overwhelming majority of sweaters available at on the American mass market are made at least partially of plastic. Huh. Makes sense. I guess I guess it does right? make Synthetic. sense. Synthetic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is wild. Now, this is cool. If you can find this article online, everything that I'm talking about has links to a, to a greater article that The Atlantic produced. Uh, the, uh, so the 81 things that blew our minds in 2023. You can easily find this. But I had to read this article last night. In t- 2003, a NASA investigation board blamed the disintegration of the space shuttle Columbia in part on PowerPoint. What? Mm-hmm. So, the long story of this is that NASA knew of structural defects in the shuttle, and all now, these. Col- wait, Col- Columbia is the one that exploded on at liftoff. At liftoff, right. right? Okay. So NASA knows, you know, their, their job is to find weaknesses in everything, and they're saying in PowerPoint presentations that were presented to the general NASA scientific community, there is so much information and so many mathematical equations on specific PowerPoint slides that those things got buried in the volume of information. But there was the problem within PowerPoint that they would say, if you would have studied this closer in our PowerPoint presentation, we would all have agreed that this was the problem and fixed me. it. Yeah. No way. So they're yeah, in the wild. Because I'm sure if you're looking at something on a screen, it's different than holding the paper I'm in sure your hand, is, right? right? Yeah, of course. Wow. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, Gender-neutral baby names are more popular in conservative states than in liberal ones. (laughs) Well, now that's a shocker. Isn't that funny? Mm -hmm. By 2051, North America may run out of three-digit area codes. Huh. Okay. So then what happens? Well, they'll just move to four-digit. Is that just a thing you can do? I'm sure. You know, it's just numbers. You just overlay it, right? Which I always thought, I mean, living in Manhattan, the area, like, we're all like, we're all about 412 here in Pittsburgh. Well, in Manhattan, when I was living there in the 80s, 212 was drying up, the area code Mm. 212. So many people wanted that 212. And so if you, then they kind of reached a hard point and said, 212, all used up. So now you've got to use, I forget what the other area code was. And you could identify, people say, what's your phone number? And you'd go 212, you go, oh, you're Manhattan. 
Oh, and if you right. lived, yeah, sure. It became a bit of a cachet thing. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Interesting. Two one two, like when Kathy Keller and Tim Keller joined us. Yeah, two one two. I'm like, of course. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. Okay. So here um, we have, of course, the seven two four also. Yes. Uh, and the four one two. Yep. But I am old enough to remember when you didn't have to dial an no area code. Area code. Nothing. Sometimes you're traveling, you know, by car in the country somewhere, and you'll see, like, someone's phone number on a billboard with no area code. Right. There's not a lot of people out no. there. No. Right? The technology behind the first rice cookers sold in 1955 is still widely used today because it's perfect. Is that right? Okay. <laughs> that's something that I've, I love rice. Yeah. I've never had. A rice cooker. Yes. We have one because my oldest kid loves rice, bought a rice cooker. They're fabulous. Really? Super so cheap. So it's worthwhile. Mm-hmm. Because I'm telling you, once you get it down, it's perfect rice every time. It's, it's really it's so simple. And they're cheap. Wow. Okay. A database of nearly 200,000 pirated books is powering many generative AI models. Can you read that again? There were too many big words. <laughs> a database of nearly 200,000 pirated books is powering many generative AI oh, models. Oh, great. So, what we're, so we just ripped off we're just information. Using information without anyone's consent, and we're, and we're using AI as a learning tool on someone else's okay, knowledge. Okay, well, so... We deserve what we get. Well, see, the New York Times uh, has been suing AI people because they've been using the New York Times as one of their databases as well without their consent. Same kind of thing. It's the end of civilization. Let me see. Um, Many eye creams are functionally identical to facial moisturizers, but are far more expensive. Oh, so if they're for your eye, they charge more. A lot more. Mm -hmm. But it's really the same stuff? Mm -hmm. Oh, that's interesting. Yep. This is weird. Foxes have committed mass murder against flamingos at least three times during the past 30 years. But I don't know. I've written, looked at the article. There is verified accounts of foxes getting together, working in tandem and killing massive amounts of flamingos. I don't know what it means. It's just a, a, a scientific fact. Okay. Despite nearly half a century of trying, we don't have any medication that effectively treats anorexia. Oh. Which would make sense. I mean, look, there's, there's prescriptions for all sorts of depression yeah. and any number of things. But anorexia, the puzzle of that, we know, with someone in our family is anorexic. And she's in her 60s. Hmm. I mean, they live far, far away, but we know we know the struggle of this. Yeah, and there's no you can't take a pill for everything, can you? No. Well, that's I never thought of that. UPS handles so many packages every year that its workers put their hands on roughly six percent of the country's gross domestic product. <laughs> Isn't that cool? Wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. One of Saturn's moons likely has a hab- habitable ocean. Really? How the heck? How mm-hmm. many moons does Saturn have? A lot of moons, yeah, right? I, a lot I, of I, moons. I, yeah. Okay. 
AI avatars led a church service in Germany this that. summer. I know. We and talked I, about we that. We talked about that, and mm-hmm. I read that article, and I dislike everything mm-hmm. about that. There's a lifeguard shortage in America. It's been going on for a century. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Now, that's something I, I actually know about yes, because my daughter. daughter's, my daughter's a lifeguard. Here's, here's the thing that perhaps those of you who are, are you know, why can't my pool open? Kids today mm. are absolutely terrified of having to save somebody's life. Really? I know a ton of people who are lifeguards. Don't make me do that. They are. T- it's not as much. I mean, first of all, there's an issue of people dumping their kids at public sure, pools. Sure, sure, sure. And so lifeguard has to be like a babysitter. Right. So that's definitely an issue. But another issue that came up over and over again with young people I knew is that terror of, oh, my gosh, somebody's going to have a heart attack. Somebody's going to drown. I'm going to it have. It's a lot of courage. It's too, they just feel like it's too much responsibility for the oh, yeah. you know garbage pay. Even get. though you've been trained. Right, even though you've been trained. Because the training, they said, that that helps me to feel better about how to teach kids how to swim or how to manage, you know, an, an event at the pool as far as kids getting out of control right. or whatever. But, but not do CPR in someone who's on the verge of expiring. Exactly. Mm-hmm. AI models can analyze the brain scans of somebody listening to a story and then reproduce the gist of every sentence. <gasps> Come on. That's scary. This is infant AI. AI models can analyze the brain scans of somebody listening to a story and then reproduce the gist of every sentence. Decades of research suggests that hypnosis might be an effective treatment for irritable bowel syndrome, at least in the short term. Really? I had a friend who was considerably older than me. She's passed away now. So she was probably 50 years older than me. Okay. So so it was a long time ago that she was hypnotized during labor and doesn't remember. The labor process. uh Uh-uh. Doesn't remember the labor process. She chose to do this. Yep. Why? Uh huh. Because she Her didn't. Fear? Well, she didn't want to. Uh, at that time, women would get a spinal block to deliver a right, baby. Right, right. She didn't want to do that. She she was oh, kind so of like an an early oh, yeah. earthy nutty crunchy. Interesting. So it was back in the fifties that she was hypnotized. Well, three, three kids. If you're listening to you know the radio up and down the dial now at the beginning of the year, they're offering all these you know hypnosis. Yeah, seminars. there are a lot of them. Weight gains, stop right. smoking, all that kind of thing. Right. right. Is there anything about stop eating cookies? 11 p.m. <laughs> well, yeah, there, there is, is like, you know, an overeating thing, right? right? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Modern flip phones stink because they're just made of recycled scraps from the smartphone manufacturing process. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so the old ones we had were good ones, but these ones aren't. Yep. 15% of daily Google searches have never been searched before, <gasps> according to the company. Real 15%. That's wild. Original searches. Yes. Every day, brand new thought, brand new idea. That's so cool. That makes me, doesn't that Mm -hmm. increase your faith in humanity? Yes. Animals at watering holes in South Africa's Greater Kruger National Park were twice as likely to flee when they heard a human voice as opposed to when they heard lions. Mm. (laughs) That tells you everything you want to know. Well, of us. Right? About a third of pregnancies in women 40 and older are unplanned. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Okay, one last thing. Podiatrists have seen a spike in plantar fasciitis cases since the coronavirus, coronavirus pandemic began, partly because so many people who work from home shuffle around barefoot on hardwood floors. 
<laughs> See, there's another benefit from coming to the office. Exactly. It's a special night coming up in February. We know it as Valentine's Day. But listen, we can even take, you know, the average special and like kick it up because this year we're all going to be together Friday, February 16th. It's a night out on the Three Rivers right here in Pittsburgh. Join all of us, including John and me and Lex. It's the Gateway Clipper Empress for our Valentine's dinner cruise. Very nice. We did it last year. You might think, well, it's going to be too cold to be on the Clipper. It actually was. No, it was a beautiful night. It really was. We had such a good time. A lot of fun. Yeah. Yep. Wordfm.com is the place to go to get your reservations Nile. We would suggest you do this soon because I guarantee you this will sell out. I would say a generally a fairly inexpensive, really great fun night yep, out. I agree. Right? Uh, go check it out. Valentine's dinner cruise, February 16th. It's a Friday evening, a night out on the Three Rivers. We were not cold. Uh, I was hoping there would be like a snowball fight up top. But there, there wasn't even any snow. Because that wouldn't have been helpful, right, but thank no. you so much. All right. But yeah, come and join us, won't you please? Yeah, we'd love to do it. So get your tickets now, wordfm.com. Very nice. All right. Uh, I don't want to leave the show today, John, without saying happy National Spaghetti Day. Oh. Lexi, happy National Spaghetti Day. Yeah. Thank, thank you. you. Thank Our you, fan sir. is excited. Um, what country do you think eats the most pasta in the world? Um, hmm. Us. Nope. What? We're number six. Number six? Yeah, we're number six. Not Italy? Italy. Oh, of course. Okay, that was my first year. Yes. I thought there was two obvious. Yeah, no. Italy right? is the is, is the number one country that eats pasta. Listen, uh, last week I saw my brother. I drove down to Virginia, and he said, let's all go out to dinner. Went to family dinner. My brother said, I'm going to do the spaghetti and meatballs at this place because they're great. I was like, great. count me in. <gasps> I had myself a Was gig- that oh, so good? It was incredible. Isn't it delicious? It was a big, beautiful plate with this really excellent sauce and these meatballs. I've been, I've been thinking about it like for days after the fact. Mm-hmm. I, it's, I never it's do spaghetti so meatballs out. Delicious. Right? Mm-hmm. It's so good. Love it so much. Um, the 10th uh, most likely country to be eating uh, pasta is Peru. <laughs> which surprises me. Really? Chile is next. Then... Iran. Uh-huh. Iranians consume about eight and a half kilos of pasta per person throughout any given year. Interesting. Yeah. Then the U.S. is at seven. I think that's surprising. I know. Six is Sweden. Really? Yep. Uh-huh. Uh, then we have Switzerland at number five. Four is Greece. Three is Tunisia. Mm-hmm. Two is Venezuela. <laughs> they like their spaghetti. Yeah. They, it says they have a very versatile cuisine in which pasta, rice, and bread are all staple ingredients. Interesting. Yeah. And then Italy, of course, is number mm-hmm, one. Mm-hmm. Um, I like any kind of pasta. Me too. Um, I, could, I could eat pasta every week. Yeah. But I, I very rarely make it. I make it maybe once every three months or something really? like that. But no. I, I deeply love it. I mean, if, if I'm alone, it's kind of like my go-to. Is it really? Yeah, it's easy. Okay. It's quick, it's easy, it feels good. And what are you going to put on that? It all depends. Uh, pesto, 
okay. as, as easy as well. I mean, you buy a nice big jar of pesto at Costco. Yeah. That's excellent. Is it it's, really? Oh, it's really good. Okay. Yeah. And of course, you know, red sauce, you know, some marinara. My wife always makes a nice big pot of it, then freezes it, which is really good. Right. But I also kind of pine for like, you know, just a regular meh, kind of just, you know, not, you know, prego or something like that. I don't mind that. Okay. First. It's fine. No. It's prego for, isn't It's a fine. guy kind of it's thing. It's okay. It might it's be easy. a guy Oh, yeah, I got thing. this. It's, it's just, you can do so much fine. better than that. But anyway, what about fresh pasta? Versus dried. We do fresh pasta. Always? Not always. More more often like a, a, a treat or okay. once yeah. in a blue moon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Isn't it delicious? It's a, it's, and it's a big cut above. I love it. Donatelli's. I have, mm, don't we miss mm, Donatelli's? Mm, mm, mm. Oh, my gosh. Um, I had a pasta party for my daughter's birthday this year, and I did fresh and it's just yeah. incredible and it cooks in three quarters of the time you know the Boom. you know the attachment that can go on the front of your stand mixer so that you can make your oh, own oh sure sure i cannot have that i just want you to know i am be not dangerous. it'd be way too dangerous yeah. making your own how about fresh ravioli mm, delish oh my god anyway happy is it national spaghetti day it is excellent the ride home with john and kathy a production of salem media group Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.